0: I want to invite you to turn to John chapter 15, please. And uh, so good to see everybody this holiday weekend. And I'm, I'm glad that you're here for the proclamation of God's word. There's nothing, nothing more important we can be doing, right? Um, so as you're, turning, as you're turning there, by the way, my name's Alan. I'm one of the pastors. And... Um, We've been going through a study in the book of John, so we're going to pick up where we left off. And this week, we return to the scene where we left off last week. If you remember, Jesus and his disciples, they're in the upper room. Uh, This is the last bit of time that they're going to get to spend with Jesus before he goes to the cross. He's already washed the disciples' feet. They've shared the last supper together. And now, Jesus is teaching them in John 15 about what it is to abide in him, to Remain in him so that their faith can be carried on long after he's gone. And, and we have some wonderful statements in there. Like when Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. Key verse in this whole chapter, right? Um, so verses 1 through 17, we're, we saw last week how he's showing them. What does it mean to abide in the true vine? What does that look like? To be truly and vitally connected to Christ. Well, it looks like you bear fruit, you keep his commandments, you experience his joy, and you love one another. We saw all of that in verses 1 through 17. So as we come to verse 18, our attention turns to a warning about what we can expect, even if we're doing all those things. If we do all of that and we truly follow Jesus and abide in him, there's still a warning that comes alongside that. It doesn't mean that the path will be easy. And so, Let's let Jesus address us this morning about another aspect of being united to Christ and abiding in Christ. Verse 18 is where we'll begin and we'll go to 16.1. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you? If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin, but now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled that they hated me without a cause. But when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the father, the spirit of truth who proceeds from the father, he will bear witness about me and you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. And I have said these things, all these things to you to keep you from falling away. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that we would allow your words this morning to land on us in a way that is sustaining you you said you said you spoke all these things you told us so that we would not fall away. We don't want to fall away, Lord. We want to be people who endure to the very end. To follow hard after you all the days of our life. We know that it won't be easy, and so we need strength in our weakness, Lord. We need power in our weakness. And we ask you for that this morning. We ask you to pour faith into our hearts in a way that will sustain us and empower us to be more effective witnesses for you no matter what rejection and opposition may come our way. God, grow our faith, grow our love for you, grow our deep affection and appreciation for the union that we have with you. And we ask you to do this in Jesus' name. Amen. So again, just... Try to picture it with me with this scene that we're coming to. Last moments with Jesus. So Judas has already departed. He's off somewhere cutting a deal to sell Jesus. It's just hours away from Jesus' crucifixion. And let's remember too, the disciples don't have the luxury of knowing how the story ends right? They don't know that Peter is going to deny him, but eventually will be destroyed. Jesus, yes, is going to die, but he's going to be eventually resurrected. They don't have the stories of the spirit coming down and being poured out and thousands upon thousands coming to faith and that the gospel would be unstoppable for the next 2000 years as it spreads out across the globe. They don't have that information yet like we do. So try to just transport yourself back into the the tension of the situation that they were in in these moments before Jesus was going to die. They were certainly facing this hostile religious establishment that wanted to silence them and a political regime that was ready to wipe them out. And the one thing they had going for them, Jesus, this miracle worker, this crowd gatherer, This great teacher, the one thing that they had going is about to go away. Where does that leave us? What will become of this thing? What's going to become of the last three years? The, The guy we've been following, the guy we left everything behind is about to go away. What will we do? Facing that sort of disillusionment and confusion and what is Jesus talking about? They're sitting here hearing these things and just wondering. Have you ever had those sorts of questions? You know, maybe there was a time when following Jesus was marked with joy and ease, but man, it's just not the same anymore right now. What's happening? And you may wonder, is it me? Is it the people out there? Maybe it's my church and I just need to change churches. Maybe, maybe it's God that's the problem. Maybe I've been lied to all along and all this whole thing is a hoax. See, we can all battle our own fears and doubts. And then on top of that, you add rejection from the world and it's increasing hostility towards the gospel. Oh man, it can become very disillusioning, can't it? You think about that young person, that teenager, that family member, that friend that you've reached out to, but it's just like you're just getting nowhere. Nothing seems to be working with them. And in fact, it seems like they're just pushing you away even more, and you're left wondering, what did I do wrong? Man, what is it going to take? Well, what Jesus is addressing in this passage is is certainly rejection, but I want you to see it's not merely rejection. The rejection, the mere reality of rejection so that when it comes, they're not surprised as though Jesus would be left there going, well, see, I told you so. You shouldn't have been surprised. And your real problem is that you got surprised because you forgot what I said. He is warning them, but that's not all he's doing. And, and I want you to see that. But for them and for us, it's not the mere reality of rejection that jesus learned about but it's really the disillusionment and the confusion and the hurt and loneliness and the lack of confidence that comes with being rejected for the sake of the gospel so when we think of it that way do you ever face those things have you ever wondered is is all this really worth it or maybe you're somebody who's already at or near the point where you just don't care about this anymore because It all just seems so irrelevant. Talking about all this stuff from 2,000 years ago and blah, blah, blah. I believe in God and that's good enough, right? This is, why do we have to get all concerned about all this other stuff? Well, no matter where you find yourself, here's the sobering truth, okay? If the disciples that walked side by side with Jesus and saw his miracle work and power with their own two eyes were in danger of falling away, none of us is exempt from that danger. And so he's addressing every single person in this room today, isn't he? And he's saying something to us so that if you look at verse one of 16, 16, one, he's saying it to us. Why? He tells us why, because he doesn't want us to fall away when the heat gets turned up. So what does Jesus give his followers and us that will protect us from falling away when the going gets tough in the expansion of the gospel, and the building of his church, and just following Jesus faithfully in our day, what does he give the disciples that will sustain their faith and empower their witness? Well, I think the main point of this passage, unites himself to him, unites us to himself so that our faith would be sustained, to sustain our faith and to empower our witness. So, while hatred and rejection may appear to be, uh, at least on the surface, to be the point, I really believe the main point here, that Jesus is driving home is this divine truth of the triune God's initiative to unite us to himself. And he shows us that in multiple ways, so that our faith would be sustained, so that our witness would be empowered, so that we would not fall away when the going gets tough. But this morning, as we go through this, we can have our attention drawn to these eternal realities that really will will get it done for us, will really sustain our faith and, and empower our witness so that we don't fall away, so that we persevere, so that we abide in the vine, so that we come into all that Jesus has for us. So how can we let this passage do that? Well, there are three things that Jesus wants us to see. The first one, union with Christ means rejection is sure to come. Now, notice all the comparison language in verses 18 to 21. There's a lot of if me, then you kind of stuff. Jesus says it multiple times. And coming out of everything he said in the section above about abiding in him and staying connected to him, the point is that union with Jesus, connection to the vine, brings the life that we need. Remember, without which we would die and wither and be gathered up and thrown into the fire to be burned. But being connected to Jesus, the way a branch is connected to a vine, means all of those wonderful things. But it also means that we join Christ in his own suffering, being hated and rejected just as he was. And Jesus is just letting us know, hey, that comes with the territory. He doesn't want us to be knocked off course or surprised or disillusioned when it happens. Peter warns the the churches about the same thing in 1 Peter 4.12. Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings so that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Paul told Timothy the same thing in 2 Timothy 3:12, "Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted." So there you have it. three different parts of the New Testament, and there are more telling us that this comes with the territory of following Jesus. Now notice in our passage the tight connection between Jesus and his followers. What they do to you, they do to him. What he experienced, you're going to experience. See, Jesus isn't merely sending a warning of what's to come. He's really stressing how intimately he's connected to his followers. And this rejection, guys, is part of the Christian life. It's an aspect of the Christian life that is included in this idea of being connected to Jesus as a branch is connected to the vine. But being united to Christ... Is also what's going to sustain our faith in the midst of that rejection. Why? Why? Because Christ has so united us to himself that those who reject you are actually rejecting the Christ who has united you to himself. See, I think this concept of union with Christ is just not something we think about. We, we just want answers and checklists. Tell me what I need to do. And we just need to pause and go, God, help me see the, the mind-blowing reality that we have been united to you. Such an important point. I'll never forget the first time this reality really impacted me. I found myself at a crossroads sort of place in junior high. So I came to faith at age 10. But a couple of years into that, just found myself uh, in a circle of friends that they knew me before I became a Christian. They knew what I was like. They knew that now I was not participating in the sins that they were participating in. And of course, like junior hires do, they capitalized on that by making fun of me and teasing me for not entering into the sins that others were doing, for being, for, for, and being teased for being, you know, a goody two-shoes and like, oh, you're better than us. And, and no doubt there would have been a lot of self-righteousness in my heart in those days. Still is. Um, but being, being teased and just feeling the pressure of rejection from people because I'm trying to follow Jesus, but feeling the pressure of rejection and, and feeling that at an age when acceptance and rejection are just huge, uh, probably the most important things in life at that age. And I had a decision to make, who am I going to follow? And I remember being in, in a, actually a, an adult Bible study and, uh, reading through Hebrews 11. So I put this passage here for you and this just jumped out at me in a, in a life-changing way really. Hebrews 11:24. by faith Moses when he was grown up refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt for he was looking to the reward. And this, this image, here Moses is, he had to decide who am I going to be joined to? In the words of John 15, Moses wanted to be had to decide: Am I going to be joined to the true vine and abide in Him, or am I going to stay in Egypt and side with the world in its ways? And what gripped me, what sustained my faith as probably about seventh grade, what sustained my faith about that passage was the raw honesty. You're going to be mistreated as the people of God. That's that's right there. You know what else is right there? Yes, sin is pleasurable. It is. You know, you, you come to church and you hear how horrible and destructive sin is. And you may be sitting there going, man, I don't know, it feels pretty good to me. I sure like it. No, the Bible acknowledges it, there's, there is a, there's pleasure in sin, but it is a fleeting pleasure. It's a pleasure that ultimately ruins and destroys. It does not sustain. And so this text is honest about that. There is a reproach that comes with following Jesus. What I was feeling and experiencing was a bit of that reproach, wasn't it? But sinful pleasure is fleeting. And even the reproach of Christ is, it says in Hebrews, greater wealth than the treasures and promises and allurements of the world. See, the point is, the real reward comes in following Jesus. That's what Moses saw. That's what Moses was willing to leave behind his cush lifestyle and and follow Christ into and to be rejected by those that he once belonged to because... Union with Christ means we will be rejected like Christ was. Now, we all have to stop and say, have I come to a point in my life where I'm willing to forsake those things that I've given my heart and my allegiance to and I've put my trust in and I've said, Jesus, I give you my life. I turn from my sins. I put my faith in you and follow you. This is what Moses did. This is what Jesus is calling us to. And if you have not done that, let me appeal to you to do that, that Jesus stands here before we get into these other warnings. He stands ready to receive all who would turn from all the fleeting pleasures of sin that are empty and satisfying in the moment, but destructive in the end and says, come to me and you can have your sins forgiven. You can be joined into my family. You can be Grafted into the vine, the, the source of life and sustenance and sustaining. There is reward in doing that. May we not settle for the sinful pleasures of Egypt, so to speak, of this world, but come to Christ. See, every person has this choice to make. How will you live your life? Young person, how will you live your life? Will you delay and wait? One day I'll get around to that. Moses Left those things. Moses didn't wait until some later period in his life. The Bible says over and over, now is the day of salvation. Do not delay. The opportunity to turn to Christ may not be there. How will you live your life? What will you do with the revelation that Jesus is giving you in his word this morning? Now, on the other hand, if you claim to follow Christ, are we ready for the rejection that may come our way? The hatred? The hatred? The being made fun of, missing out on the sins that everyone else seems to be enjoying. See, even as believers, we're still always asking this question, aren't we? Do we see the reproach of Christ as greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt? Well, that's what Jesus is wanting us to see this morning. Remember, apart from me, you can do nothing, he said. But by being united to him, oh man, there's great reward. And that same reality and promise is what's going to sustain our faith when we feel like giving up or giving in. The triune God has united us to himself. What good news is that? And just think about how profound it is to say, Jesus, Jesus is saying here that, that what they're doing to you, they're actually doing to me. That is profound. I mean, that is how united we are to Christ. It's that image from John 6 about God holding his people in the palm of his hand and no one can snatch them away. I had the privilege of preaching that passage. Remember, I had Christian come up. I chose Christian because he's a 1,000 feet tall and his hands are like this big. And so he was able to envelop both of my hands with his huge hands. It was such a good picture of how God... Shelters us in Christ and protects us. It's that image of being so joined to Christ, so united to Christ, that when the fiery darts of the enemy are coming our way, there's someone else who's absorbing them because of our union with Christ. You belong to Him. Oh, let that sustain your faith when you're tempted to doubt. It's not like there is a crowded theater. And Jesus was looking around for a seat and said, oh, there's one over here. Come and I'll, I'll join you into the, the seat that's over here. And he seats you down somewhere like that. That's not what it is to be included. That's not what it is to find a place in Jesus. He doesn't do it that way. No, you belong to him. He's united himself to you. He's not just given you somewhere to sit. He's joined himself to you. Both images are in the Bible, but the one here is this image of being joined to Christ like a branch is joined to the vine. And so, this reality can sustain us when we're rejected or our message is being ignored. Why? Because it's not about us, is it? We've been united to Christ. He is the true vine and he absorbs all the rejection that comes our way. Now, how do we know that? Where can we look? Is there anywhere we can look to see if Christ, in fact, absorbs rejection on our behalf? Oh, yes, there is, right? On the cross, he faced the ultimate and worst kind of rejection anyone could ever face. He was rejected by his father, not for sins that he had committed, but for sins that we had committed. But God, being rich in mercy, sent his son to take that punishment He was despised and rejected, right? He was smitten by God, Isaiah 53, so that we would never be. So yes, he absorbs all the rejection that's aimed at us for following him. He resorbed it on a cosmic and eternal level. And that has implications for the the horizontal people, sociological, you might say, rejection that comes from following Jesus. The, the worst rejection that we deserved from an almighty, holy God because of our sin, Jesus absorbed in himself. And that, that just puts all other rejections in perspective. Is this good news for you? We, we sing this, right? We're sheltered by his saving grace because Jesus has set us free. And this reality, oh man, let it sustain your faith when you're tempted to give in or give up or get disillusioned. May it change the way we see rejection and gospel setbacks. It certainly can, and it certainly should. Now, Jesus takes it a step further, though, and he shows us that their rejection of him is actually a rejection not just of you and not just of Christ, of the man Jesus, but it's really a rejection of God the Father himself. So he takes it up a notch. Point number two, rejection of Christ and his followers is rejection of God the Father. He introduces this idea in verse 21, if you look there with me. Right at the end of verse 21 he says, because they do not know him who sent me. Now he's referencing the Father. Up to this point he had been emphasizing that if they hate you, it's because they hate me, but here it gets even clearer that it's, the real issue is that they hate God the Father. And he repeats that down in verse 23 whoever hates me hates my father also. Just as much as belonging to him means belonging to God, hating him means hating God. There's certainly a point to be made here about Jesus' equality with God, but I think the accent is really on the seriousness of rejecting God the Father when you reject Christ and his followers. That type of rejection is very serious. Now, why is he talking about that Right now with his disciples. So let's just remember the triune God wants to strengthen and sustain our faith in Christ. And he's doing so right here by warning us of the seriousness and danger of unbelief. Now, I've given you three things about unbelief that I think we can see here from this passage. First, their rejection was in the face of clear, irrefutable evidence. What was the evidence? God's glorious appearing in the person and work of Christ. If you look at verse 22 and verse 24, he makes the point that if he hadn't come and spoken to them and revealed God to them and done miracles among them, they might have an excuse for their unbelief, or at least they would not be guilty of sin. That's what it says. It's a tough phrase, right? But I think what he's getting at there is that they would not be guilty of the sin they are presently guilty of, which is rejecting Christ, even though he's standing right there in front of them, revealing God and proving himself to be the Messiah. They're rejecting Christ, and in so doing, they're rejecting the Father. Now, how is that meant to sustain the disciples' faith and empower their witness? Because... It's not about them coming back to that, is it? When we make faith and witness all about us and our strategies and our techniques and our performance, we're implying that, you know, if we could just get things right, then maybe people would believe. But let's just be honest, no, who had a better evangelistic strategy than Jesus himself, He had the perfect evangelistic strategy and he's kind of admitting that here because he's saying everything that he did about it, but people still rejected him. And so that's Jesus' point. Here he is, God in the flesh, proclaiming the word and people are still rejecting him. So don't give up because their beef is not with you or it's not with the lack of evidence. It's ultimately with God and it's described here In the language of hatred, it's pretty intense, right? So their rejection is in the face of clear and irrefutable evidence. Second, their rejection is without excuse and will be judged. This is the deep nature of unbelief, guys. Yes, he provides many reasons for unbelief, but ultimately it's what you do with Christ that matters. Rejection of Christ will not be excused, and it will most certainly be judged, Verse 22 says, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Verse 24 says, now they have, this is a sobering phrase, seen and hated both me and my father. Do you see what Jesus is doing? He is holding them fully responsible for their choices and actions. And he will judge all who reject him. Now, coming back to our question, how is that reality meant to sustain our faith and empower our witness? Well, minimally... It should compel us to share Christ with others. Because the same Christ that warns of judgment also extends his arms and calls sinners to come and to cling to him and to be saved. And refusal to do so incurs the penalty for that rejection. Oh, may it not be said of anyone here that they have seen and hated Christ and his gospel, and the Father's loving offer of salvation, do you realize it's possible to, to both see it and still hate it? Oh, may that not be the case. If God is being gracious to you and opening your eyes to see it, may, may you come to him. Come to him. Respond to that revelation and cling to Jesus, lest it turn into hatred in your heart as it did for many. So those who reject the gospel are without excuse, they will be judged. This is the world, a phrase we see 70, a word we see 78 times in the book of John. This is that world. This is what they are doing. But let's remember, this is that world that God so loved in John 3.16. This is that world that he came not to condemn, but to save in John 3:17, And let's just remember here in verse 19, this is the world also that you were chosen out of. Do you see it in verse 19? Look at it again. If, if, if uh, I'm, My eyes are blurry here. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but you are not of the world because I chose you out of the world. Again, it's, it's, reminding his disciples where they came from and what they were rescued out of. Every single Christian at one time was without excuse in their sin, fully deserving of divine judgment until Christ stepped in and saved us. That's why we sing, his mercy is more. Our sins, they are many, but his mercy is more. And it's this world that we've been rescued out of and it's this world that we're being sent back into with the message of the gospel. And as we do, we should remember the third point, God is sovereign over the, their rejection, which is being sent back into a world and we're being told that they're going to reject it. And even in their rejection, verse 25, God is sovereign. The word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. This is most, most likely a reference to Psalm 69:4, where David is being pursued by his enemies. And he said that they were hating him uh, without cause. But here Jesus applies that phrase to the world's rejection of him. The fact that he refers to something in their law suggests that he had unbelieving Israel in mind when he says this. But really, by extension, everyone else who hates him without cause as well. So he's making the point that rejection of this greater David was prophesied hundreds of years before Jesus even arrived on the scene. And so he's telling the disciples, don't be surprised that it's happening now because this this was prophesied hundreds of years before. But remember, again, this is not a told-you-so kind of moment for Jesus. By pointing out the fulfillment of prophecy, he's showing them that God is sovereign to fulfill his promises, including sovereign over man's rejection of him. So again, how would this fact sustain our faith and empower our witness? Well... Let's think about that. We can trust God in his sovereignty even when our message is rejected. Yes, we're called to faithfully bear witness. But our confidence is in a sovereign God who is sovereign over salvation and sovereign over man's rejection of him. We don't have to be able to unravel that mystery either to be able to trust him. So if your mind is spinning and you're like, how are both are true? You don't have to unravel that mystery to trust Him because the Bible teaches us that both are true in Scripture and we cling to that which is clear in Scripture and we can trust Him for the things that are less clear and that remain in the realm of divine mystery. But we must cling to what is clear in Scripture and this much is clear. It's easy to get hung up on things that we can't adequately explain. But let me suggest to you, you want to get hung up on a mystery? Get hung up on how is the fact that A perfect holy God can unite a sinful person like me to the righteous Christ. That's the mystery we should be preoccupied with. Oh, what an amazing mystery that this grace has come to me. That's one to allow ourselves to be laid low because of the grace and mercy that we've been shown. So, these verses in this section are showing us the sober reality of unbelief, the sober reality of what's going on behind the scenes. When you're being persecuted, hated, rejected by the world. But then we come to verse 26 and 27, which gives us the sustaining reality of something else that's going on behind the scenes. Namely, the Holy Spirit will come to turn you into the witnesses of the very thing that the world is rejecting. So point three, the Spirit will empower our witness to overcome the world's rejection. This is amazing. So if union with Christ wasn't enough to carry you through this world's rejection and hatred of Jesus and the gospel, and by the way, it is, but as if that wasn't enough, we also have the Holy Spirit. The text says, when the helper comes, it's not a if, but it's a when, and for the disciples that would have been at Pentecost shortly after Jesus' ascension. For us, Ephesians 1.13 tells us that the Holy Spirit comes to us when we believe. So, upon believing and becoming a new creation in Christ, the helper moves in and he takes up residence in our heart when he's there. And he's got a mission when he comes. Now, again, let's just pause and say, why why is all of this here? Again, this whole chapter has been stressing the importance of remaining in Christ, staying connected to Jesus, And our passage today has been warning us that as we do that, we will attract opposition and hatred from the world. But Jesus is reassuring us that really they're rejecting him because they hate God. So why these verses? 26 and 27. Why? Because Jesus is aware of our tendency to withdraw from the world when it seems that all we're getting is doors slammed in our face. Isn't it easy to give up on people? We might even give up and say, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm really just trusting God. But we're really just making an excuse for not reaching out again. We really trust in God. Because, as the song says, it's trust and obey. So trusting God is never an excuse for inaction. We don't want to let it become that. And Jesus is aware of this tendency of us to withdraw because we've been rejected enough times by a family member who doesn't love Jesus, who is walking in sin, a friend, a co-worker, somebody that we're reaching out to. Jesus is very clear that there will be opposition, but he's just as clear that we must not retreat. And he's even sending the Holy Spirit, he brings that to their attention here, to help us not do that. One writer says it this way is in your notes: the world may hate both Jesus and the Father but the Father has not given up on the world. I love that. After Jesus' departure, he will continue to reach out to the world using two agents to accomplish his purpose. He will send the Spirit and he will send his disciples. The fact that the disciples have been trusted with this task is the reason why they simply cannot run away from the world that hates them. If you want to summarize 26 and 27, that's it right there. You can't run away from the world that hates you. And I'm sending you the Spirit so that you can run right back into the world that hates you with the message of the gospel. So, the Spirit has a mission, and His aim, His aim, the aim for His mission is the world that hates God. The Spirit's described here as the helper. And it's a Greek word that we sometimes transliterate into English as the paraclete. So, we've said that word before. Um, Now, I realize that's not a word that's used in everyday speech. But I do think it's uniqueness is helpful because the Holy Spirit is unique. And, and we really don't have a word that quite uh, a- adequately captures it. I mean, helper can mean a lot of things, right? You go to a little kid, do you want to be my helper? Like that's not the kind of helper the Holy Spirit is. So even that word is limited. What's more important is that we understand who he is and what his function is in our lives. Yes, he's a comforter, but he's not just a comforter. He's not just someone to come alongside you for the journey. He is that. But this word really has an exhortative quality to it. So think Romans 12, 1, I appeal to you, brothers, and the mercy of God. I urge you, brethren, uh, in view of the mercy of God. That urge, appeal, language is this exact same word, parakaleo. It's the same word. There's an exhortative quality to this idea of the paraclete, of the one who is described here as the Holy Spirit. So he urges us, he commissions us, and yes, he empowers us. So when we're down and discouraged, what is he doing? He's working to lift us up, to send us back out into the fight, and to even go with us. See, he's a helper in that sense. And we're told there that he is also the spirit of truth. Where the world has been duped by these many lies of Satan, the Holy Spirit here is the spirit of truth. He ministers truth, and he bears witness to the truth, which is Jesus Christ. He's sent from the Father and proceeds from the Father, we're told. And he's on a mission to bear witness that Jesus is the Christ so that you may believe. Remember John's broader purpose from the whole book, that these things have been written so that you might believe. That's what he's doing behind the scenes. And the world's rejection of Christ is no reason for him to slow down, is it? Does he slow down, get weary, give up, give in? No, he doesn't. So why should we? God is at work by the Holy Spirit testifying to the person of Christ. As we step out in our weakness, in our own discouragement, as we put one step forward in faith, trusting God, know that the power of the triune God is behind our obedience, empowering it to do more than it can ever do on its own. More than we can ever do in our own weakness. Now, look at verse 27. And you will also bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. So, he's doing that primarily through the witness of Christ's own followers. Yes, the Spirit's at work behind the scenes doing all of these things. But the instrument, the way he's getting it done is through his own followers. Like you and me. He was telling his disciples here that they would be those instruments especially since they've been with him physically from the beginning of his ministry. But really, by extension, it is this gospel and this Bible that we bear witness to now And so when we do, Jesus is assuring us that the Spirit is at work doing things we can't see and working through us in ways we can't see. He is empowering our witness so that we can face opposition and hatred and persecution in every form so that our faith and witness would actually endure to the end so that we don't grow weary in being rejected. You know, maybe there are parents here who are weary of presenting the gospel to a child that the child just continues to snuff and blow it off and ignore and reject or mock and make fun of and they seem disinterested. Jesus would be showing you right now the helper's with you. Don't give up. He's not giving up. He's not giving in. He's at work accomplishing things that you don't see right now. So keep being faithful. Set it before him. Let love compel you. You're grafted to the vine. You've been united to Christ. He's with you in this. You may stumble over your words and he may ask questions that you can't answer. God is at work. Keep stepping, putting one foot in front of the next and being faithful to present the gospel because God is at work doing things that we cannot see. He is empowering our witness so that we don't grow weary when we don't get the results that we're hoping. It's not just that he's empowering us, but as we faithfully bear witness to him, we have this assurance that for some, he will overcome their rejection. No matter how hard they seem or how fierce their rejection of him is, no hostility is too much for God. There might be a Paul among them who is literally killing Christians and who is rejecting Jesus now, and one day God will break into his hardness and knock him off his horse and turn him around and use him to build his church. That's the kind of God we serve. There is no rejection and hostility that is too hard for God. And we've got to stand on that. We've got to let that reality sustain our faith and empower our witness. We can pray this way. We can faithfully bear witness this way no matter how weak we feel and we can trust God to do what only he can do. Now, I want to bring this to a close with a well-known story that I'm sure many of you are familiar with but it just bears repeating because it illustrates so well what Jesus is showing us. John Patton. John Patton was a missionary in the late 1800s to the tribal people groups of the New Hebrides in the South Pacific. And he experiences immense suffering and loss uh, from natural causes. But on top of that, the people he was reaching with the gospel were cannibals who hated him and hated his message. So he has that famous line when somebody told him, Don't you realize if you go there, you're going to be eaten by cannibals? And he says, my, my dear brother, I'm, when, when I die, I'm gonna be eaten by worms, I'm gonna be eaten by cannibals. Doesn't make any difference to me. If I'm eaten by worms or by cannibals, my body's gonna resurrect in the final day and it, as fair as yours will. So it doesn't matter. That, that was his perspective. So he, here he is among these cannibal natives who are regularly seeking to kill him. And he, he tells us one story where they finally surround him and they, they get him in the middle of a circle and he's on his knees and he's got a buddy with him, and everybody, they've got muskets, and they've got spears, and they've got rocks, and they've got, and they're, he's surrounded, and the guys are arguing among themselves, you throw it first, you shoot it first, no, you do it, you do it first, you do it, and nobody can do it, and he's, he's just got a smile on his face, because he realizes no one can touch me without God's permission right now, so that's, where the famous thing that he said, that I realize that I am immortal to my master's work is done. And so he he has experience after experience with this. One night he was being chased by the natives who wanted to kill him, and he climbs up into a chestnut tree to hide. And he describes that night in the following way. He says, I climbed into the tree and was left there alone in the bush. The hours I spent there live all before me as if it were but of yesterday. I heard the frequent discharging of muskets and the yells of the savages, yet I sat there among the branches as safe as in the arms of Jesus. Never in all my sorrows did my Lord draw nearer to me and speak more soothingly to my soul than when the moonlight flickered among those chestnut trees and the night air played on my throbbing brow as I told all my heart to Jesus. Alone, yet not alone. If it be to glorify my God, I would not grudge to spend many nights alone in such a tree, to feel again my Savior's spiritual presence, and to enjoy his consoling fellowship. Do you see how the reality of union with Christ became an experienced reality through the power of the Holy Spirit that enabled him to say, alone, but not alone. Because he was experiencing a reality of union with Christ through the experience of the Holy Spirit manifesting Christ's presence to him. Taking the theological concept of union with Christ and bringing it into his experience. That's what God wants to do for us. And it sustained his faith. And it empowered his witness in the face of some of the fiercest opposition imaginable. Now, we might not find ourselves in a chestnut tree running from native cannibals. But... What challenges and setbacks are you facing? Where do you feel like you're defeated or your faith is deflated? What battle are you facing that you're just tempted to give up? Oh, the triune God has united you to himself and he's given you his spirit. You have everything you need to not give up. Let these realities sustain your faith and strengthen you in the battle. They will protect you from falling away you feel weak and disillusioned, maybe skeptical? Jesus wants you to know something. He wants you to know that if you're trusting in him and you've placed your faith in him as your Lord and Savior, the triune God has united you to himself. And he wants that reality to sustain your faith and empower your witness. So let's see it afresh today, right? Let's be encouraged by this reality. Let's be strengthened by it. Let's cling to it. Jesus told us all these things because he doesn't want us to fall away. That's why he told them all. He wants us, he wants them, he wants us to endure to the end and he's given us everything we need so that we can. So let's take a moment and look to him. Josh, you can bring the team and uh, let's close in a song. We're gonna take a few moments and just look to him now and say, Lord, I wanna bring you my weakness, and my failures. It's easy to hear a story like John Patton and go, man, my faith's not that strong. I think John Patton would have admitted that. That's what's so special about that moment in the tree is God's grace showed up in a powerful way that he'd never before experienced. God does that. But let that encourage you that he does that in weakness. God's not looking for the strongest person in the room that he can show up for. Really, he's looking for the weakest person in the room because when we're weak, he's strong. So we can be honest about our weakness. We can come before him with it, present it to him and let him fill our hearts with the realities that we're learning this morning. This is how we can sustain faith when we're rejected, when we're discouraged, when we're disillusioned. Let's stand together. Lord, we invite you to do this for us. God, we thank you for... The reality of union with Christ, we admit it's not something we give much thought to, but our attention has been drawn to it in this section of John's gospel. But you are the true vine. And we wanna remain in you. We wanna be connected. We wanna abide. We want the life that is in you to flow into us, Lord. We ask you to do that, Lord.